So we started last week with the introduction, and we see that John and Christ intend us to have our minds renewed. Counter images, right? The world presents one depiction, one image, one story of what the world is. Christ comes and says, that's good what you see. However, here's a look at what's actually happening behind the scenes so that you can endure what you're going through. And this passage that we're about to read is the foundational image. It's, a, it's bizarre. You know, John sees and he turns and sees Christ in all his glory, not the wounded Christ any, any longer. He sees him as the resurrected, glorious, reigning king. And this image is early on in the book because it's meant to stay with us throughout the entire book, that that is what we keep looking back to time and again, not just in the book, but through our lives as well. So we're going to try to figure out who is this king, okay? Let me read Revelation 1, verses 8 to 20. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Theatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Okay, we jump right into the bizarre vision, and I'm excited about it. So, first, how quickly did the church grow in Rome? We don't know. Because although there were censuses that were taking place, we've talked about them before here, the censuses weren't like ours. They didn't track religious affiliation. They just wanted to know how much money do you have and how many kids do you have that we can send to war. And so we don't really know how quickly Christianity grew. But people have tried to figure it out, sociologists have tried to figure it out, because we do know that it rose, grew very quickly. We know that it grew to a place of incredible prominence by the time it became an official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century. And a guy named Rodney Stark in a book called The Rise of Christianity, great book, I suggest you buy it and read it, he tries to figure out, as a sociologist, how the church grew and, when, and the size of it. You may not be able to read this, but his assumptions are there was roughly a thousand Christians around the time of the resurrection. And then, by then, you see it quickly marching up, exponentially rising, so that by the time it becomes an official state religion in Rome, there's roughly 34 million Christians in the Roman Empire. 
It's an incredible growth, rapid growth. And oftentimes, scholars and pastors really focus on why did it grow so quickly? Like, what what was going on? I have a slightly different question. I want to know, which I think is more interesting, why the heck would anybody want to be a Christian in the first place? Why would you want to be a Christian in a place and in a time when it was incredibly difficult to be a Christian? And it meant exchanging a good, comfortable life for a very difficult one. So it's one thing to say it grew, because, you know, Starbucks grows, Twitter grows, things grow. But they grow because they're beneficial to you, right? You get something good out of it. The question is, why would somebody become a Christian at a time when it offered more negative things than positive things? So we, talked often, we often talk about physical persecution of the church, and if John is writing at the time of a guy named Domitian in the late first century, then there would have been physical persecution. But let me spend just a couple seconds before we jump into the text, and those of you who see my shoelace untied, don't worry. <laughs> I, that may distract you. I'll just do this. I'll really bother you. Um, but <laughs> rather than focusing on the physical side of persecution, which we've talked about often, let's look instead at the social and professional persecution, because there was great implications for being a Christian in these early days of the church, because other churches and other religions, other religions would arise in the Roman Empire, but they would slide relatively seamlessly into the pantheon of other religions. Christianity, however, comes, and it doesn't slide in quite as nicely. It doesn't amalgamate well, because Christianity demands that you resist that you be distinct from the culture in a couple of key areas, many key areas. So let me use a few examples to show you the cost of becoming a Christian at that time. And you're going to see that it's very similar to today. Maybe not as extreme, but similar. So the first one is immediately as becoming a Christian, you would have been known as an idiot, <laughs> complete idiot. A Roman historian, very famous, named Suetonius, has this to say, they, Christians, are a class of people given to a new and wicked superstition, he writes. Tacitus, another Roman statesman historian, says, they are hated for their abominations. Celsus, who is a man who uh, would have many debates and was a great hater of the church in its early days, in the second century, he would go on to say, you have to be a complete imbecile and a fool to be a Christian. They're all dim-witted. They only attract dim-witted people. And you'd have to be dim-witted to join them. Um, So not much pleasantness coming out of Celsus either. In fact, he said they also attract the worst classes of people because we know Christianity grew amongst the marginalized early on, especially quickly. But then there's a guy also in this fragment of a letter called the letter of Diognetus. So we'll put the picture up. This is what we've, that's the fragment in Greek or in Latin, it's in Greek. And he appears to either be a Christian or he was somebody who was an apologist, a guy who was defending them a little. And he says, listen, Christians are like the rest of us. They eat our food. They do, they're just like us. However, they differ from us in two distinct ways. They don't share their beds with other people, so no adultery. And they keep all their children, even if they're not of the gender we want. And that early indication shows what the church was known as. It was known as generally being, like, they're decent in the culture, they're beneficial, says Diognetus, but they are a little bit crazy about you know, monogamy, and they won't leave their children. If they have a daughter when they want a son, they won't leave it out to to die of the elements, which those are pretty good things, I think, by the way. So right away, if you become a Christian, you're going to be known as an imbecile in the culture. Not too different from today, really. But not just that. 
we know there was the archaeologists have found these Roman uh, dinner invitations from this era. And the dinner invitations are interesting because you would invite people over for social reasons, but also professional reasons. You want to build your network. And on this invitation, and all the ones they seem to find, say similar things, that the gods will be there. The Roman gods will be at this party, and we're going to offer a sacrifice to them and drink to them and toast them. There would often be token prayers or dances or incense burning, all these things. So if you want to be a part of the in crowd, you better go to these parties. But as a Christian, what do you do? Do you go to these parties? We see Paul address it in his letters to the Corinthians about how do you behave with food, sacrifice to idols, and so on. Because it was a big deal. How do you operate as a Christian in a culture that asks you continually to give up something of your Christianity? But then let's think about your work. Imagine you're a servant in a household, a Roman household, which many early Christians were. Every well-to-do household had patron gods and household gods that they would worship. And they would offer sacrifices and prayers to for the blessing of the family. If you're a servant in that house, you're expected to do the same. But what if you're a Christian and you don't want to sacrifice to these gods? Well, then at very best, the best you can hope for is your, owner, your, 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 your bosses will be mad at you. Because they'll say things like, well, do you not want the family to thrive? Is that why you're not doing this? Do you not care about us? You'd be seen with suspicion. You may be reported to the authorities. You probably would lose your job because you don't, you're not one of us. You're not pulling in the same direction. So to be a Christian puts your job and livelihood or your livelihood in jeopardy. But not just that. Imagine you're now a government official. To be a government official was also, um, you would have to be, go through rites and initiations because the idea was you first offer blessings and sacrifices to the gods so that your job will go well but also to give you, invest you with authority, the rights would appease and say by the power of Apollo, or by Apollo, Jupiter, let's say, because Apollo's Greek, not Roman. By Jupiter, you have the power of Jupiter to be a senator of Rome or whatever. But if you're a Christian, do you want that? How do you then serve in the government? Do you do as some Christians will say and say, I just can't be in government then? No, no, it's the wrong answer. But how do you do it? How do you live as a Christian in that context? Or let's say you're in any number of trades in the ancient world. They had guilds. Guilds are like unions. If you wanted to practice your trade in the Roman Empire, you had to be part of a Roman guild. So, and some of the examples would be if you were a weaver, dyer, bookbinder, painter, masons, bakers, leather workers, cobblers, candle makers. All of these had guilds. If you want to be allowed to practice your trade in the Roman Empire, you have to belong to the guild. But the guilds have patron gods that you're expected at the feasts and meetings to sacrifice to and pray to because you want to succeed. If you don't participate, you can't be in the guild. If you can't be in the guild, you can't practice your trade. If you can't practice your trade, you're in poverty. So why would anyone become a Christian? And that says nothing about the physical persecution. It's a very good question. Why does anybody want to become a Christian, let alone 34 million people, prior to it being legal? And the answer is in this passage, many passages, but this passage, it tells us. Because there's something that the early church saw in the Bible, and I think specifically here, this image that they're seeing, that turned their opinions and made them think, it's worth it. It's worth either giving up my livelihood or trying to be shrewd about how I'm going to do it. By the way, remember Daniel and Joseph served wicked people, and God never said, stop doing it. Get out. And we have people today, I know in our young adults group even, who are going to be teachers, they're going to be nurses and doctors. 
How do you, how are you a Christian in the, in the education system where you have to teach certain opinions about gender that you don't agree with? How do you work in the health industry when you're at a place that condones abortion and assisted suicide, assisted dying? How do you do it? Does it mean you have to stop practicing? Well, no. But either way, what we see in this image, this grand, bizarre image of this being that, Jesus, that John sees, was enough to make them think it was worth it. And not just to survive the persecution, but to grow and explode across the map. So when people say the church, oh, people may not come back to the church because of COVID. That's a people problem, not a God problem. God, there's no reason why the church should shrink amidst anything, let alone COVID. If it shrinks, it's more of an indictment on us, me, than it is on God. So what do we see here? We are going to see the reason, this image that they saw that allowed them to thrive, that allows us to endure anything, anything that comes our way. It's because they saw a God who is over us, with us, and under us. Okay? Over, with, and under. Let's jump into over. So, John comes and Jesus describes himself here in this passage and throughout the book of Revelation in three phrases that are very similar and used interchangeably to an extent, though they have different words. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and the first and the last. Right? Those are the repeated refrains you see throughout this. Now, the terms are important. They're all different. First and last are protos and eschatos, and the beginning and end are the archi and the telos. They're all different, but here's the crux of what we're getting at, because this is important, because they tell us that Christ is above our problems, sort of, but also in them, you'll see. So the first thing is when he says he is the beginning, the first, the beginning, the archi of us, you have to understand what this word means. We'll put it up on the screen there. I, it's, uh, it means, it's, it's not just the beginning. You see, sometimes we can think of the beginning as being the progenitor, the one who sired me, as if I am the beginning, the archi of Caleb. Well, no, that's not what this word means. It doesn't mean even that he is the builder of us or the creator of us in the sense that he is, uh, that God is on a, an assembly line worker, you know, and he's putting together automobiles. Or, or my kids, when they get a Lego set, they pull out the Lego set, they drop it all on the floor, they get the, uh, the instructions and they build something. Some people would say that's who God is. That's not what Archie means. What Archie is saying is he is more akin to being Henry Ford to the Model T. Okay? He's more akin to being uh, Eli Whitney to the cotton gin. He didn't just build you, he thought you up. He dreamed you up before you ever were, he knew you. And so he's trying to get this idea that I'm the beginning of you, nothing escapes me, I'm at one end of your creation, because this is comforting. Remember, John is being persecuted, that's why he's in prison. His churches are being persecuted. He worries as a pastor for his churches. He needs a message of comfort. And it is comforting to know that, okay, my beginning didn't start without God, and then the ending won't either, because telos doesn't just mean the end, as if when he say, you know, a murderer could say, I'm going to be the end of you, <laughs> or cancer is the end of you. That's not what it means. What he is saying instead is he is the destiny of you. Telos means the destiny of a thing. So, an acorn's dest telos is to be an oak tree, right? A tadpole's telos is to be a frog. Your telos is not to be a dad, a mom, a pastor, a nurse, a teacher. It's to be in Christ. Every human, every human's destiny is marching inexorably 
to Christ. The question, of course, is whether you're going to meet him as savior or judge. But he is saying, I am inescapable, John. And why is that important? Why is that comforting to John? How is it comforting to know that God is so above, so transcendent, so beyond everything? Well, it becomes very important because of this. It tells you, what Jesus is saying is, John, I know your world looks in disarray. Think about it in our context too, everybody. I know your world looks in disarray. I know it looks like evil is winning. But look at me, he's saying. Look at this image. Let this image cleanse your mouth from the world's image and say, yes, this is all real that you're going through here. However, it is not the controlling image. What is, what is actually going on is this image, and he gives us this image of himself. And this gives us not only two things, really. It eases anxiety, and it builds anticipation. I've used it many times, and I'll use it until I die, probably. My wife, lover, she hates scary movies. She hates uh, tense movies. And um, I took her to see Lord of the Rings way back when it came out, and she had never read the books. So you can't really see it, can you? You can't really see it, but this is a, a picture of the battle at Helm's Deep in the second book of Lord of the Rings. And it is a very tense part. You don't know who's going to win, good or bad, uh, unless you've read the books, or unless you realize they've made three movies and you know the next one is coming out. <laughs> don't tell Sarah. Um, but it's very tense. And as a result, because she wasn't sure what was going to happen, she was anxious, she didn't want to watch it, she was stressed. The second time, it was easier third time, and so on. So that now as our older kids start reading the books and get anxious watching them, we can then say, I know it's tense, and we can enter into that tension, but we've peaked at the end. It's going to be okay. And so Revelation begs you to look at the end time and again. Continually rehearse what is going to happen and who is on the throne, this image. Because the more you look at it, the more comfortable. So while the rest of the world is losing its head, you and I won't. So the rest of the world is, and I'm not being too political, but let me be clear. While the rest of the world is worrying about rallying support for convoys and for politicians, we are focused on the gospel. It allows us to keep our heads when the world is losing it. But it's not just easing anxiety, it builds anticipation. Because who know, doesn't know, maybe as adults you lose it, I don't know, but as kids certainly, who doesn't know the joy of Christmas and waiting for it, or a vacation maybe? Maybe this vacation, I don't know. What's about that anticipation? Who, and I don't know if it's the same as adults. Maybe I'm still juvenile. But do you ever feel like that moment you're waiting for will never come? As a kid, it's like, oh, Christmas is two days. Surely the world's going to blow up. It won't happen. No one would let me be that happy. You know, you can't almost believe it's going to come, but it builds anticipation. And so, ironically, although the end in Revelation does not appear pleasant entirely, we yearn for it. Every time you and I pray the Lord's Prayer, you are praying for Revelation. You're praying, what do you say, let thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Do you know what you're saying? You are asking for Christ to come and judge the world because that's, if you, want, if you want what is happening in heaven, it's not literally physically up there necessarily, of course. If you want that to come down, you're begging for judgment, purification, justice to come. But it builds anticipation, so we cry, come soon. <laughs> Who hasn't read the news lately and thought that? Come, we don't know how to fix this. And so it builds anticipation and eases our anxiety. Once you have seen the telos, you begin to yearn for it. And you won't be broken by trials because we have this God who is over us. But now let's move into God who is with us. Because if we only have a God who is over us, then we're actually no better than every other religion in the world. Because just about every religion says there's some sort of a being or power over us that is almighty, transcendent, right? 
So there must be something more. And the image in Revelation 1 is building on itself. It's building a picture. So God is over us, but he can't just be over us. There must be more. And the image is beautiful. Look what he says. Um, actually, actually, before we get there, let me say this one thing. Let's move into political cartoons. You'll see why. Images is the biggest problem with Revelation is people interpret images poorly, I find. And here's an image on the screen. I don't know if you can see it well. Yeah, it looks pretty good. So it is a bear and a wolf squaring off with a lion and a tiger in the background. It looks like there's a crown on the lion. So what is happening in this image? Because this is a real political cartoon. There's a purpose behind this image. Now, if I let you just choose what you think is happening, I don't know what you'll come up with. I asked one of my kids, and they thought the wolf was attacking the bear. Another one thought the bear was attacking the wolf. That's an important distinction, isn't it? Who's attacking? How do you know? What's the point? Why is the lion sitting back? Isn't he the king of the jungle? Like, what's happening in this thing? And he's not in the jungle, technically. The king of the savannah. Um, so what's happening in the image? If no one helps you understand the time and purpose of th that was behind this image, you're going to come up with all kinds of wild theories. Revelation is riddled with images, and if you don't know the context of them, you're going to believe anything. And that's a problem. So this one, for instance, was printed in England in 1885, right after Russia, the bear, invaded Afghanistan, the wolf. And England, the lion, and India, the tiger, are cowering, watching, because they're afraid, because the only buffer between India and Russia was Afghanistan. So they're worried, what comes next? Isn't that interesting for today? What comes next if we let them take Afghanistan? But that was the image there. Let's use one more image. Here's one. Big, hefty fellow watching two guys scuffling in a doorway with another one watching on. What's happening? Well, who knows? The only hint we get, maybe, is a striped pair of pants and a cotton store logo on top. Would it help to know this is what's happening? That image was very well known as the image of a guy named John Bull, which was a, like the Uncle Sam of England. It represented England. So what is happening is during the Civil War, America fighting in the doorway, Britain is looking for someone to get their cotton from. But because they're fighting, India is waiting to take their cotton trade. So the political cartoon is saying, hey, get your house in order, America, because you're losing all kinds of opportunities here. And India, or somebody's always ready to take it. But again, if you don't know the context, you don't know what the image is. So let's be a little humble if we've thought certain things about these images in Revelation and say, okay, what did they mean? Before I can know if this applies to me, I need to know if it, what it meant to the people who got it, right, first. And so, with that, we now look at these bizarre images here in this first chapter. And remember, this sort of thing will happen throughout the book of Revelation. We'll have to do this continually. So, the first thing we are told is there's lampstands. Seven lampstands seemingly arranged in a circle. Lampstands meaning probably menorahs. Seven of them. Lampstands have flames on them, obviously, or they're useless. And in the midst of the lampstands is this being that John sees. What are the lampstands? Well, this is easy. We're told they represent the churches. Good to know. Remember I told you last week, seven Number of perfection, meaning it's not just those particular seven churches. It means it represents the church, capital C, right? Every time, seven is always seen as the number of perfection, always, or wholeness. Keep that in mind, because we're going to keep hitting the number seven, and if you start trying to see it as, no, it literally means seven numerically, you're going to have some problems. So seven, he's, and in the midst of this is this being. So here's what we know. 
whoever this being, this God is that John is seeing, he is not aloof from the church's struggling. He's in the midst of their struggling. He's in the middle of it. He's not standing outside like a puppet master, like other gods that say, you'll never know the will of Allah. Just enjoy, just, just, just trust me. You'll never know I'm outside of you. I'm too far above you to ever come down. No, this being of the Bible, this God of the Bible, is in the midst of the churches. Such a comfort to John who is struggling. He needs to know that God is not just over him, but is with him. So that's the first thing we're seeing in this image. Then we get this bizarre, seemingly bizarre, description. Let's bear with, I think, did I say it in the midweek email? Revelation is loaded with the word like, similes. When he says it's someone like this, or his eyes were like fire, don't try to think there's fire in his eyes. It's like, it's a simile. If I say my wife is like my mom, I'm not saying she's my mom. <laughs> there's a reason I put like in there. It's a simile. So, these images is John, an ancient person, seeing something incredible and trying his best with his art vocabulary and probably a second language, because he's a Jew, he's trying to articulate it. So let's remember that. But what does he say? see? First thing he sees is a man in a robe, symbolically. Who wears robes in the ancient world? Priests, kings, prophets, generally. Which one is standing before John? All of them. Prophet, priest, and king. So whoever it is, he is somebody of authority. That much we know. Second thing he sees, he has a sash around his chest. Around his chest is important. Today, we only see three people, as far as I know, ever wear sashes anymore. The first one is the queen. The second one is Miss America. The third one is Mr. Monopoly when he wins second prize at a beauty contest. <laughs> That's it. The only people who wear sashes, as far as I know. But do you notice the way they're wearing them? It's not across their chest. They're wearing it like this. The placement of the sash is important in the ancient world. When the king wears his sash across his chest like Mr. Monopoly here, he is at war. He's active. He's fighting. Okay? His freedom of motion. When a king would sit in his throne and rule in peace and safety, he would have it around his chest. Now, this is what John sees. He sees a king or something. We're going to see in a minute who exactly. And he has the, his sash around his chest. The reason that's important is when John is in the middle of turmoil and struggling and persecution, he doesn't need to know God is on the case. He needs to know it's finished. He doesn't need to know God's going to fix it. He needs to know what God is saying, listen, I'm at peace. I'm ruling. It's taken care. I'm, it's done. This isn't a God who has to struggle with chaotic creation. I said this if you're in my Old Testament class as well. The God of the Bible doesn't struggle with anything. Okay? Anytime you read a historian or a scholar or a pastor that says God struggled with chaos, no, he didn't. Nothing can resist God. There's no struggle. There's no struggle. And the image that John needs to see is comfort. And the comforting one is to know that there is a king on the throne and he has taken care of it. So it's a, piece, it's a comforting image again. Next thing. He has white hair, like wool, like snow. Well, there's only one other place in the Bible. Daniel 7.9 is the only other time you see anyone described with this sort of hair. And it's God. The image is taking shape now. So who he sees before him is God. One like the Son of Man, again, Daniel 7. The Son of Man in Daniel 7 is given all authority to rule everything by God in Daniel. So it's a powerful image, a comforting image he's seeing. Let's move on. This being before him, who is apparently God, has flaming eyes. Fire in the Old Testament symbolically is two things. It destroys and it purifies. 
The eyes are searching. Remember, my eyes are searching over the world to see if there is any who are righteous. The eyes of God judge the world. And it'll e- God will either destroy or purify everything, meaning nothing escapes his judgment. So John, no need to worry that evil's going to win. Because the one I see, the one he sees, the one we're being presented with, is watching, and nothing will escape his gaze. Nothing. It'll either be purified or destroyed. John needs to know that. Because John, just like people in Ukraine and in other places, may never see justice here. So they need to know there is justice. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point? So, that's the next image. Next one. His feet are like burnished bronze. I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know until I was much older that bronze is harder than iron. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Burnished bronze is the hardest, is the hardest thing they would have known at the time. And this is important because the last time you heard about somebody having weird feet is Daniel. He has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And in the dream, he's got feet made of clay and iron. Remember? The feet are made of a composite, a compound of two different things, meaning they're not pure, they're not strong enough. In fact, that's the point of the vision is to tell Nebuchadnezzar that your kingdom, O Nebuchadnezzar, is too heavy for you. Your feet can't sustain the weight of what you're claiming you are. So when he sees this, all these claims about judgment, power, all these things are placed on top of the foundation of the hardest thing John knows, meaning all these claims can be sustained by this being, every one of them, this foundation, this power. Next one, a voice like rushing waters. So power to soothe, to cleanse, but also to destroy. Again, next one, the stars are in the right hand. This one is a couple of ways of looking at it. This being is doing this. He's got seven stars in his hands. John will later in chapter, in verse 20, explain, Jesus will explain it and say, those stars are the spirit, seven spirits. But remember, is seven literal? Can't be. Remember, we have to find a way. So what he's saying is it could be seven individuals. What he's saying is the seven spirit. And throughout the book, he's going to refer to seven spirits, sevenfold spirit. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Think about this image. There's a candle with a flame on it. In fact, we sang a song. Who lit the flame of the church in the song we sang earlier? The Spirit lit the flame, remember? The idea being the churches are on fire, they're aflame, they're warm, they're providing warmth and they're heat for the world, but they are fueled by the stars that are in the hands of Christ. He supports the church. But there's also a couple scholars point out something I think very interesting. They say, yes, that's certainly true, but there could be another shot that Jesus is making towards the culture. Because in the ancient world, the stars in astrology determined fate. Is it possible that what he is saying is the things that you're looking to to determine whether or not you should play the lottery is all in my hand? Everything. They don't control fate. I control fate. But either way, if that's what's happening, then that's certainly comforting to John, isn't it? That the church will not fall apart because of heresy within the church or infidelity in the church or anything. It'll only fall apart when Christ extinguishes its flame. And by the same token, he was the one who controls it all. So it's important. It's a comforting image again. His voice is like a sword. So it cuts, it divides, it conquers, but it also heals. We have surgeons and nurses in the room. Healing, isn't it? You probably get angry when people, if you're a surgeon, people are always saying, you know, scalpels, knives, all they do is cut. No, they heal as well, which is the point, because the Word of God does both. It does it all. Last one, his face is shining, which is symbol, power, clarity, life, health, All of this image that we've just talked about is the one standing in the midst of the church in its its suffering. 
So do you see why it's important we get this right? Because if we know that that sort of a king is standing in our midst through any struggle we're going through, it ought to change the way we respond to them. Always. I don't need to worry that Trudeau is going to take all my rights away because Christ is sovereign, not Trudeau. I don't need to worry that COVID will destroy the church because COVID was not doing anything that God didn't allow. Christ and God is sovereign. And so this controlling image must dominate, not just our view of Revelation, but our lives. This is the point of these incredible images. But he is not just powerful. Because look at what happened. It's so beautiful in verse 11. The hand that controls everything, his right hand, it says, and then he reached out, because John falls on his face, right? Terrified. And his right hand, with his right hand, he reached out and touched me. You see, the hand that creates everything, he then extends that powerful, unneeding hand, doesn't need you, and he reaches out that power to comfort you when you're struggling. The same hand that controls everything is, meant, is given to you for comfort. That's important. And this is why other scholars say, hey, do you notice that this description of Jesus looks a lot like the description that the woman in Song of Songs gives of her lover? And if you're in community groups, you'll get to read it. It's in chapter 5. I'm not going to read it. But she describes her lover, and it goes head to toe, and it describes similar things. And it's probably not by accident, because this image of a God who is over us is also the God who is with us. He's not just our Savior, but he's the lover of our soul. He is not just powerful, like you would see a, a glass of water in an oasis would be refreshing and you'd revere it because it's, it nourishes you. But this is also a God that makes you fall in love with him because he would dare to put his hand in and comfort you. This is an incredibly powerful image that John is seeing. If he understood it that way, which it looks like he did, I don't know if the church does all the time, but that's why we're preaching this. So, lastly, I don't know how long I've been talking. Under. So God is over, he is with, but it's not good enough yet. Remember, the image builds. If God is only over and with us, then he is Dr. Kevorkian. Let me explain. He's only a grim midwife. See, a midwife brings life into the world. A grim midwife helps you out. Assisted suicide. Because if he's only powerful, and he sits along your side and suffers with you and holds your hand in it, but does nothing to stop or to reverse the effects of death, well, then thank you very much, but I'm still in the same predicament. So he must be more than just a grim midwife. Must be more. And so, of course, the text says this very carefully here. I put it here. He can hold our, uh, hold our hand in suffering, but if he, does, if he neither alleviates our pain nor restores what is lost, he is of little help to us, which is true. Because like I said, people will die in, in injustice. Does that mean there's no justice for them? Whoever this king is, if he is worthy of the name God, he must deal with our real problem, which is eternity. Justice, injustice in the world. So, what happens in this passage? Look what he says about himself. I was dead, now I am alive, and I have the keys of death. Daryl Johnson is a pastor. I think he's retired now, but he's also a scholar, and he has this to say about this passage. Literally, Jesus says, stop being afraid. Why? Because Jesus Christ has walked into the gaping jaws of the greatest enemy there is. On the cross, he let all the powers that threaten to undo us have their unrestrained way with him. He let death take him captive, and then he burst out of the prison and carried away the prison keys. The image is this. Christ, seeing that we have no hope in death, we die, says, I will come. I will die on your behalf, sinner though you are, perfect though he is. He dies. He then goes into the belly of death, 
punches a hole in the side and comes out with the keys. If he says here, like he does, that he has the keys of death, that means he decides who dies and who doesn't. Not Trudeau. Not that that Trudeau's trying to kill you. Sorry, Trudeau. I'm not trying to slander him. Not any leader, not any disease. No one has the final word. No one is the telos of you. Christ is. Only. He holds the keys of death, meaning he can let you out. He can restore the years the moths have eaten, to quote the prophets. And this, if he hasn't gone under us and then been raised out of death, then he's of no help to us. So the resurrection is everything. If you, I, I, this is interesting, people sometimes tell me, uh, I was a Christian, I'm not anymore. And the question for me, and I learned this from another pastor, is never, so what happened? It's instead saying, so why is it that before you thought Christ was raised from the dead, but now you don't? What caused to change that? Because the question is ultimately, was he raised or not? Because if he was raised, we have hope. If he was not raised, you have no hope. There's none. Don't listen to anybody who claims you do. So that everything hinges on the resurrection. And I can't go into all the details as to why the resurrection is a plausible thing. But let me use one thing that has always impacted me. Who remembers this movie? It's made from a book. The movie is called Stand By Me. Remember? It was a Stephen King book, believe it or not. And um, it's a coming-of-age story about four boys who go, um, I guess technically they go on a journey to look for a dead body, not the most pleasant. But along the way, it's a coming-of-age, you know? It's a journey story, a quest, an epic of sorts. And in it, one of the main characters has a brother, played by John Cusack. And um, the brother was the golden boy. He was the football player. Everybody loved him. But he died in a car accident. And now his little brother is left, and his parents kind of think he's the runt, and they don't pay him attention or anything like that. But when he died, the parents do what humans do. They hated losing their son, understandably. So what they did is they left his room exactly the way it was. It was a shrine. They left it just the way it was the day he died, and they won't touch it. Because this is what we do when we lose people who are close to us. We enshrine. We don't want to lose the memory. Why does Mary grab hold of Jesus at the resurrection? Don't go. I don't want to lose what I had. Of course, maybe at Easter we'll talk about why he says what he does. But you're going to hold on to what we think we've lost. And so, as a result, if you were to go to uh, Graceland, whose tomb would you see? Elvis. Because we know he's dead. If you were to look for Buddha's grave, you could find it. We know where Buddha is. If you want to look for the, the, where Muhammad the prophet is buried, we can find that too, at the Green Dome of Medina. You see, but if you go to Israel and you say, show me the tomb of Jesus, you're going to have 12 guys trying to tell you, it's over here, sir, it's over here, it's over there, it's over here. Lots of traditional sites, but nobody knows. Why? Because if they thought he was dead, they would make a shrine for him, wouldn't they? That's what we do. And yet, there's no notice of where he is. The reason is, nobody thought he was dead. The ancients didn't think he was dead. They didn't enshrine him as they did with other people. That is a good enough answer for me, just on its own. There's other reasons to believe. But we enshrine things, we think we're going to lose them. But we don't. We didn't enshrine Christ's death place because of that. We don't even know where he was crucified. We have this nice hill that looks like it has a skull in the face of it. So we think it means Golgotha, place of the skull. But we don't know. It just makes money for tourists, guys, right? We don't know. And the reason is, if that son didn't die in the movie, Stand By Me, they wouldn't walk by his room and weep. They'd walk by and say, pig. That's what they say. Look at this messy room. And so, the fact that he is raised from the grave means that we can endure anything. 
If the church could endure the things it went through in the early days, which were similar to ours, we're still struggling to figure out how, what it means to be a Christian. We're still being persecuted to an extent. Nothing like the early church. And they were able to endure and say, you know what, it's worth it. It's worth the transaction. And that's because they believed this image. And if we can embrace and see what we're, what we're meant to see here, we'll become a church that is radically different. We won't be worried, and I'm not going to pick on people, but we won't be worried about things that are inconsequential. Okay? I won't say what they are. You can, you'll, you'll learn that from me over the years. There's certain things that actually don't matter if he is raised from the grave, not in the same way we think. I don't make a shrine of this church building. I don't, because it's only here to serve people. It'll be burned up. It's going to be gone. We must seek him because he is at the center. And it's such a great image. If we understand this, boy, what a church we'd be. And if you don't, if it's the first time you're hearing this, then do what John did. Fall at his feet, repent, and believe. That's the only hope amidst this king. The only hope. But the good news is there is hope. Let's pray.